Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Gideon, for sharing. And thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Uh, yeah, like Elena said, one second, let me make sure my laptop's not going to go flying. Seems stable enough. Okay. Uh, like Elena said, we have been going through a series all semester titled Things That Jesus Has Said. Are things that what Jesus says about, sorry, it's up on the screen, you can read it. Um, what Jesus says about, fill in the blank. Um, and tonight, I want to cover what Jesus says about trust. Uh, but before I dive into that, I wanted to bring you guys back to seven-year-old Sarah um, and tell you a story about from when I was seven years old. Um, kind of give you a backdrop. I am the youngest of three daughters. Um, and for those of you who are youngest or have older siblings, you might relate to this, but growing up, my siblings used to try to get me to do all sorts of things, um, for, probably for their entertainment, um, but because they loved me too. Um, but yeah, they would do all sorts of interesting things, like, I mean, try to get me to play different games with them, that was fun, but then try to get me to do weird things, like eat different foods blindfolded um, so that I could guess what the food was. And they used to give me like really disgusting food because they thought it was really funny. Uh, like the worst one was like wet dog food. So that gives you a good mental picture. But uh, a pretty normal thing that my middle sister tried to get me to do when I was seven years old was to do a trust fall with her. I, she was about like 10 or 11 at that age and I think she just learned about trust falls. So she thought this would be the ultimate sisterhood thing to do with my little sister. So she told me all about it, how it would like give us a better bond, all this different stuff. And so I hesitantly went into it. I have a vivid memory of being in our living room, squished between our coffee table and our blue couch. And she really talked it up and I really wanted to do it. But every time she told me to fall, I would catch myself mid-fall, and I just could not do it. And after like probably a dozen tries, that's not even an over-exaggeration, the look of like just pure disappointment filled her face, and I felt really guilty. So I'm like, all right, this time I'm actually going to do it. I'm going to let her catch me. So I spread my arms out wide, I fell, and she actually didn't catch me. <laughs> I fell into the coffee table, broke the coffee table, and skinned my back. So, uh, as you can imagine, that gave me some pretty bad trust issues. I have never done a trust fall since then. Um, and I've actually come to realize that I just, in general, have terrible trust issues throughout my life, and I could imagine that you guys, too. Um, yeah, I oftentimes either can't trust someone, like I couldn't trust my sister to begin with, or I misplace my trust in someone, like how I misplaced my trust in that she would actually catch me for the 12th time. So throughout my life, I still see this playing out in various ways. In adulthood, I've seen this the most when my security is ripped out from underneath me. And I, yeah, see a pattern. If security is minimized, my trust is minimized. And this seems to be a common occurrence for people throughout history. When a security is taken away, it reveals our misplaced trust. When our security is gone, when your security is gone, what part 
of seven-year-old Sarah do you see in yourself the most? Do you have a hard time trusting anyone outside of yourself? Are you, catch are you catching your own fall? And how tired is that making you? And how long do you think that you can keep it up before your strength fails you? Or do you misplace your faith in things that actually can't hold you? You might not have an older sibling who lets you crash into coffee tables, but what about when life is so hard that you just immerse yourself deeper and deeper into tasks, trusting that busyness and achievement will fulfill you, only to feel burnt out and overwhelmed and emptier? Or what about all the trust that you place in your relationships, just to find that they can't fix everything because they're only human. So I think this should leave us asking, okay, if you're saying you can't trust yourself and you can't always trust people, which not trying to give you guys bad trust issues, like there are people that are worthy of our trust. But what I do wanna point out is people are people and you're a person too, and things are things, and they're gonna fail us in one way or another. So we should ask ourselves, okay, who is worthy of our trust? What are we to do with our trust? Is it worth trusting anyone? And if we can't always count on our friends or our family and we can't, can't even count on ourselves, where should we be putting it? At the end of Mark chapter four, we are shown just that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter four. Mark is one of the first four books of the New Testament. So about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And before we dive into reading Mark, I'll go ahead and open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. Um, yeah, just thank you so much that we're able to gather together to open your word and read it together. I pray that we wouldn't take this for granted that our hearts would be open to what you have to say to us tonight, and that my words would not be my own, but that you would speak through me. I pray that you would convict our hearts of the ways that we misplace our trust and open our eyes to see the ways that you are worthy of our trust. We pray this all in your son's name, amen. Okay, so like I mentioned, we're gonna be in Mark chapter four. Um, if you want to get to Mark chapter 4, verse 35, that's where we're going to start. And right at this area of scripture, uh, Jesus and his disciples have just left a huge crowd of people uh, to cross the Galilean Sea on various fishing boats. And right before we enter this fishing boat scene, Jesus has been speaking to large crowds all day long. And after a really long day of teaching, Jesus is pretty tired, which I can imagine, because back then they didn't have speaker, or not speaker phones, microphones like we have today. And I don't know, Jesus throughout scripture, it talks about how he talked to really, really large crowds. So maybe this feels like a large crowd to you, but magnify this even larger. And he's speaking to that crowd without a microphone. So just imagine how tired you would be in that situation. And so we'll jump right in with that imagery in your head. Uh, Mark chapter four, verse 35 says, 
On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, and the them is his disciples, his followers, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, which is like the bottom of the boat, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So we enter the scene seeing that Jesus is on a tiny little boat in a crazy storm, and he falls asleep. And I was really curious to see the size of fishing boats back in Jesus' time, because I'm no fisherman, so I don't even know what size they are nowadays. So I did a little research, and fishing boats back then were roughly 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four feet high. Now, yeah, I don't know what a modern fishing boat size is, so that didn't give me much uh, explanation of comparison. So to give you comparison, opposed to 27 feet long, nowadays fishing boats are 98 feet long. So fishing boats back in Jesus' time was like a third of what we have nowadays. And so now you get a bigger mental picture of a really tiny, stinky, rickety boat in a huge storm. And Jesus falls asleep during it. He stays asleep even when the crazy, violent windstorms start throwing their boat to and fro. And for me, that personally sounds like a nightmare because I get really, really motion sick. I drove home from Denver today, and even driving from Denver, I get really nauseous, just miserable. Um, and so I can't even fathom what it would feel like to be on such a tiny boat in a terrible storm, and Jesus falls asleep during it. So here's Jesus sleeping in a boat that's essentially like on the spin cycle of a washing machine. And Jesus wasn't alone in this boat. He had quite a few of his friends with him. And so now I'd like for you to imagine yourself in his friend's shoes, the disciples. How would you feel if your fearless leader was sleeping through what felt like the death scene of your life? You'd probably flip out too. You'd probably start saying all sorts of things that you'd later regret. And to give you an even bigger picture of what's going on, I looked up, um, yeah, what the Galilean Sea is like. And the Galilean Sea that they were on is 696 feet below sea level. And then not only is it that low, but then it has huge cliffs on either side. And I don't understand science-y things, but all the things I read talked about that when you combine like a low sea level with huge cliffs on either side, when a storm comes, it creates like almost like this turbine effect. And so the disciples, they, quite a few of them are fishermen. And so they've had their fair share of storms out on the sea. And so you would think like, yeah, like they'd get used to that. But the fact that they were freaking out accusing Jesus of not even caring about them. This must have been the worst, most terrifying storm they've ever experienced. 
And this just shows how insanely intense the situation was. So let's continue on reading in Mark verse 39 to see what happens next. And he, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind. Oh wait, yep, and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, you can ask my husband, but I'm kind of grumpy when I first wake up in the morning. Um, any fellow non-earlier morning risers here, uh, hopefully you can commiserate with me. But if somebody wakes me up out of a deep, deep sleep, I'm not gonna wanna help them. The disciples not only abruptly woke up Jesus, but they woke him up by accusing him. I think we can often accuse Jesus of similar things. When something hard or scary happens, we accuse him of not caring. We see here that the disciples woke Jesus by yelling at him, what the heck, Jesus, we're about to die and you could care less. If I were Jesus, the last thing that I would wanna do was to help them. But fortunately, Jesus isn't like me and he isn't like you in that way. Jesus spoke to the storm, which is crazy and amazing in itself, and he said, be still. And the even crazier thing is that the storm heard his voice and obeyed him. The wind and the raging sea recognized his voice as the very one who spoke them into existence. Now, I want to give you another visual picture. Uh, Imagine you had a cup of liquid, maybe it's coffee or tea, whatever you like to drink, and you are stirring it up. Once you stop stirring and you take your spoon out, the liquid doesn't magically just stop moving about. It's several seconds until it stops. But in this instance, when Jesus commanded the storm to stop, it didn't take minutes, not even seconds, immediately, the sea was calm. Looking into it, I imagine that you'd be able to see a reflection of your face, maybe even looking down and being able to see fish swimming around. So now let's see what Jesus' friends did in response to this miraculous thing that he did. So we'll continue reading in verses 40 through 41. He, Jesus, said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? After Jesus spoke to the storm, he turned and asked the disciples, guys, why don't you have faith in who I am? Now leading up to this point, his disciples had seen him do all sorts of amazing things and they still were not trusting him. I can only imagine, though, putting myself in the disciples' shoes, how they must have been feeling. Once they saw what Jesus did, they were in shock and in awe. Can you imagine? One minute, you're in a terrifying storm, and the next, you see your friend talking to a natural disaster, and the crazier thing is that the natural disaster actually listened to him. They asked, who is this guy that even the wind and the water obey him? And what they meant by this was, only God can do that. Jesus must really be God. 
So the disciples are now truly starting to see and believe that Jesus is really God. I mean, after his display of power over the storm, they were probably willing to follow this guy anywhere and do whatever he asked of them. But the disciples are just as human as we are. Later on in Jesus's life on earth, he started being accused of all sorts of things and he was being brought before a governor to be killed. When things started to look really, really scary for Jesus, things started to look really, really scary for his followers as well. And many of his followers, including Peter, who had been on the boat with him and saw exactly what he did, started denying that he even knew him because he started losing trust. Just like their fear in the boat was crippling, the fear of not knowing what might become of Jesus and themselves was also crippling. So when our security is ripped out from under us, our misplaced faith and trust is revealed. You see, the sin beneath the disciples' lack of faith and lack of trust in Jesus was their misplaced trust in their comfort, their own abilities. They were trusting in the wrong things. Now, what I find to be totally fascinating is that the language that Mark uses to tell the story of Jesus calming the storm is super similar to the language we find in another Bible passage. This story is found in the Old Testament, and it's the account of Jonah. For those of you who may not be familiar with Jonah's story, I'll quickly highlight the parts that resemble the story that we just read about Jesus calming the storm. You see, Jonah was also on a boat in a raging storm, and this part like has always blown my mind, like the parallel is crazy. He was also sleeping through a storm, and the sailors that he was with came and woke him frantically, yelling, Jonah, wake up, we're gonna die. We've been crying out to each and every one of our gods, none of them have listened to us, we're hoping that your God will do something. And after the sailors found out that Jonah had been running from God, Jonah tells them, throw me overboard. If I die, you'll live. And as soon as they, were, as soon as they throw him overboard, the storm came to a complete halt, and the sailors lived, and then Jonah got swallowed up by a giant fish. So if you want to read more of that, I... Uh, yeah, encourage you to go back and read that in Jonah on your own time. It's a really crazy, amazing story, and you'll be mad at Jonah the whole time, I promise you. Uh, so obviously, when Jesus calmed the raging Galilean Sea for the disciples, he didn't do it by hurling himself overboard like Jonah had to do. But we do see in the Gospel of Matthew, so that's the first book in the New Testament, that Jesus tells us that one greater than Jonah is here. And he's referring to himself when he says that. For me, I think of that and I'm like, I don't know like exactly what he means by that. Like, of course he's better than Jonah, but what are like the implications of that? So there's actually a quote by one of my favorite pastors named Tim Keller from his book, Jesus the King. And he explains Jesus's comparison to Jonah this way. He says, when Jesus said, I am the one true Jonah, he meant someday I'm going to calm all the storms and still all the waves. I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, and kill death. 
How can he do that? He can do it only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm. He was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, of what we owe for our wrongdoings. That storm wasn't calmed, but until it swept him away. So essentially, it's talking about the storm, the raging sea of the sin that's against us, the sin that says we need to pay. He calmed that storm through his death on the cross. He threw himself into that raging storm for us. And what the disciples witnessed Jesus doing to save them from the physical storm in the ocean was going to seem seemingly like nothing compared to what he was about to save them from, the sin that he was about to save them from of eternal damnation. To make it possible for them and for us to be in relationship with him forever. So what does this all mean? It means this, we can confidently put our faith and trust in Christ. Whether you're trusting him for the very first time or if it's the millionth time. Unlike me placing my faith in my sister because I felt bad or pressured to, we can trust Jesus because he has proven that we can trust him. He is worthy of our trust because of the very nature of who he is. So there's several different reasons within his nature of why we should be able to trust him. But I wanna highlight three of those reasons for you tonight because we have limited time. So the very first reason is his deep love for us. He loves us deeper than we have ever been loved or will ever be loved by anyone else. We all have a deep longing to be loved. We wanna be loved by our parents, our friends. Sometimes we even wanna be loved by our coworkers. You name it, we thrive on love. And I think we can see that this is just such an innate part of who we are, the way that we were designed, simply by turning on the radio. Well, I guess we don't really use radio nowadays, but by turning on your Spotify or your Apple Music, uh, within like, I don't know, an hour span, I'm sure more than half the songs that come on will be revolving around love. And that's not just a coincidence. Artists know that this is what we thrive on and this is what we need because they thrive on it and they need it too. Think about a person that loves you a lot. If they're asking you to do something that feels really scary, I think back to when I was a kid, I was terrified of shots. I still kind of am, but when I was a kid, like it was like petrifying. And I remember like going into the doctor's office for every shot, like pleading with my parents, why, why does this have to happen? And what would give me the most comfort is when they would look at me and say, this is for your own good, we're doing it because we love you, and this needs to happen. And then I'd get my shot, and life would go on, and I was okay. And that helps me realize 
when I know that somebody loves me deeply and what they're asking of me or what they're putting in my life isn't because they have ill intent, I'm willing to trust them. And far greater than any human being could ever love us or want good for us, our Heavenly Father loves us so much deeper. Jesus' love is the ultimate and perfect love. When I truly acknowledge his deep, never-ending love for me, it provides me with the deepest security. One of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible is one that Randy and I had at our wedding, and it's from 1 John 4.19, and it says this, We love because he first loved us. And what's so striking to me about this is that the mere concept of love is capable because the Lord loves us first and he created love and he created us to be in a loving relationship with him and with others. We wouldn't even have love or be capable of it without him. Then a little bit before that verse in 1 John 4:16, it says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Guys, Jesus doesn't just love us. He is love. He's the epitome of love. He created love. In Jeremiah 31.3, God tells us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. His love isn't capable of stopping or fading. So, the second point I want to point out is, all right, God loves us a lot. There are people on earth who love us a lot. I mean, God's love is like the ultimate love, but every aspect of who God is is important. And so the second reason why we can trust the Lord is that he is all powerful. And I think that this plays into his love in a really important way. So he is all powerful. So thinking back to my sister who let me fall into a coffee table, she loves me a lot. The fact that she let me fall into a coffee table does not make me wonder if she actually loves me. What it helps me realize is the poor girl just kept watching me catch myself over and over and over again. She didn't know what was gonna come next. She thought, Sarah's gonna catch herself again. I'm not ready because she is not an all-powerful, all-knowing being. She is just human like I am. So what should comfort us is that not only is God all-loving, but he's all-powerful. Jesus isn't surprised or thrown off by anything. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since, ever since, the creation of the world. Psalm 147, 4-5 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to, he gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. 
the God of the universe who created every single star in the sky, who created the sea, created absolutely everything, not only is he all powerful, but he's all loving and he created you and he loves you. Let those implications sink in. Without love, we would have a powerful yet really cold God. Without power, we would have a loving God who is super, super, super limited, just like we are. But no, he is both loving and all-powerful. And that's really good news. So the third point, the third attribute of the Lord that I want to talk about tonight is that we can confidently put our faith in Jesus because he is always with us. Jesus was right there in the boat with the disciples, not on the shore, watching them from afar, like, all right, you got this, just try a little harder. He wasn't floating overhead in a uh, protective, futuristic bubble. As a kid, I had this really weird image of Jesus. I pictured, like, the world, like this, and I heard about how Jesus was everywhere, and my child mind couldn't comprehend that, which really, any mind really can't comprehend that because it's a crazy concept, but it's true. But this is how my childlike mind was trying to fix that. So the way that I thought about Jesus being everywhere was like, all right, well, God is like really big. He's everywhere. So Jesus is like wrapped around the earth in the sky. So like his foot is over China and his hip is over, I don't know, I'm bad with geography. So if I gave an example, you'd just laugh at my geography skills. But that's not true. The Lord is with us here, and he was with him, or with them in the storm. And when he was with them in the storm, it's not like he, like sure he was asleep, but it's not like he was protected from the elements. It's not like the human side of him was protected which again, is really hard for me to wrap my, around, my mind around the fact that he's fully God and fully man. But when he was in the boat with them, he was feeling everything just like we would. He felt the salty sea and he felt the water just weighing down the boat. And so when I find myself reading scripture, the part of scripture that talks about Jesus's time here on earth in the Gospels, a lot of times I actually find myself feeling really jealous, really jealous that these people got to experience Jesus here with them, like getting to talk to him face to face, getting to give him hugs, getting to go on adventures with him. A lot of times it just doesn't feel fair. But here's the thing. Even though we live post Jesus's physical time walking here on earth, he didn't leave his people to fend for themselves. He left us with the most precious gift in the world, his Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, Jesus said this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says, Where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? Oh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, 
you are there. Some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before ascending back to heaven said this, Behold, I am with you always. God isn't this all-powerful, all-loving being that is far off and distant, who we only hear from on birthdays or whatnot or see on holidays. It's not like that. He's not like a human being. No, he's all-powerful, all-loving, and he's right here with us. When we misplace our faith in ourselves or something else, we are flat out ignoring all that Jesus is offering us. So I wanted to ask you guys, what is your storm? What's the situation in your life that's ripped your security right out from under you? Maybe you're you're living in it right now. Maybe it's a situation that you're coming out of or going into. Whatever it is, we all have those things. We may not know what it's like to fear for our life as we desperately try bailing water out of a sinking fishing boat, but we have all felt a sense of lost security. For you, maybe it's that you just lost your job or you had to say goodbye to someone you really love. For me, a little over a month ago, I had to say goodbye to a really really good friend who passed away just suddenly in her sleep. That took away a lot of security. Gave me a lot of stuff to have to ponder and think about of where am I putting my trust? I think I put my trust a lot of times in the security of just having the people that I love here with me. With her dying in her sleep, it gave me thoughts of, what if I wake up in the morning and my husband's like not here anymore? What's gonna happen then? And feeling this like just immense sense of lost security and realizing it's because I put my trust in my earthly relationships. And I think that it's important to have trust in our earthly relationships, but we can't have all of our trust in them. They don't deserve our full trust because they're just people. Maybe it's like something that feels really intense right now, but years from now you'll look back and you'll be like, I barely even remembered that. Maybe it's something like you just failed an exam and you're just feeling that lost sense of security of, my everything's in my grades, and you're putting all of your trust into that. Or maybe it's even feeling just really lonely or like you don't belong where you are right now. Whatever your storm may be, when your security is ripped out from under you, who will you place your trust in? Who will you run to? Jesus is more than capable and more than willing to catch you. If I'm being totally honest, like I mentioned before, sometimes... I catch myself, or at least I want to catch myself. I want to be the one that I put my trust in. I want to do it all myself, and I don't want to rely on the Lord. But when we recognize, when I recognize that he loves me deeply, that he's powerful enough to hold me without dropping me, and that he's right there with me through the highs and through the lows, it reminds me that he is completely worthy of my trust, more worthy than I could ever be, more worthy than any other human being could ever be. As we close in worship tonight, I want to invite you guys to think about two different questions, to reflect on these two different things. I want you to think about 
what am I misplacing my trust in? How am I catching myself, if you will? And then the second question is, what is the next step for you in trusting Jesus? Whether it's trusting him for the first time or entrusting more of your life to him. So the first question, what are you misplacing your trust in? And then the second question, what are your next steps in trusting Jesus? What steps do you need to take? What ways do you need to study his word, study his attributes, talk to him and remind yourself of the glory and the goodness of the Lord? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful that that you are here with us, that you're a loving God who is capable of everything. You are all powerful, you are all good, all loving, and you're here right with us. Pray that that would just capture our hearts and remind us that you are worthy of it all. You're worthy of our praise, our honor, glory, and most of all, you're worthy of our lives. Pray that we would just stop trying to trust ourselves, placing our trust in things that won't hold us, but that we would run to you with open arms, wanting to let ourselves fall right into you. Pray that you would just be with my friends tonight as they go home, that, yeah, they wouldn't forget these things, and that you would just continue to work on their hearts. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.